in this uh, fourth week of our look at the opening part of the book of Isaiah in the Christian scriptures. Glad you could join us with us today. Australia's favourite politician has had a very good week. Uh, Health has been the issue and instead of shying away from a political black hole, which health often is in our country, uh, instead of shying away from the political black hole, which is health, Instead, he picked up the ball and ran with it, despite probably what people would have suggested, and it appears to have, uh, he appears to have pulled it off. It's been a very good week for Australia's favourite politician. Barack Obama has had an excellent week. <laughs> How long do you think till we see Barack for PM bumper stickers? Actually, they already exist. They already exist. Barack has been a magnet, interestingly, for the hopes of millions of people and not just in his own country of the United States. His message has been a message of hope. You remember his key election uh, campaign slogan? Yes, we can. Yes, you can remember. (laughs) Says Megan, fresh from a a night of West Wing trivia last night, right? Anyway, uh, yes, we can. When you unpack yes, we can a little bit, what is it actually saying? It's actually saying we know there are real problems, but we're confident that a solution really is possible, and therefore, because a solution is possible, therefore, hope is real. All summed up into yes, we can. And who doesn't want hope, right? No one wants a wishy-washy sort of, oh, we hope it gets better. But we want real solutions, don't we, to the world's problems? We want real solutions. We want plans that are actually being put into effect, not just endless series of green papers or white papers. Certain hope is what we want in the face of real problems. Well, certain hope is what we think we need, but certain hope, realistically, is probably... The best we can get is probably that's what we'd like. Because can you really have certain hope? Yes, we can is inspiring. Yes, we can is effective political slogan. But can Obama really guarantee that he will deliver? I mean, at best it's a plan, isn't it? At best it's just... Well, it's not certain hope, is it? It's hope, but it's not certain hope. So it used to be said that the only certainties in life are... Death and taxes. Well, today, I, from the one true living God, from his word to us, the Christian scriptures, I want to add a few things to that saying. I want to add a few things to that saying today. I think there are some more things that we can be absolutely certain of from God's word. So I hope you've got the book of Isaiah there. You've got a Bible there. You might like to open it up. It'd be really helpful. We're being pretty modest today. We're only going to try to cover from Isaiah chapter 13 through to Isaiah chapter 27. (laughs) No worries. But we're going to start by looking at Isaiah chapter 23, uh, 13 to 23. That's where we'll start. So you might like to look along with the person next to you. 
Now, what you're getting in Isaiah 13 to 23, we're not going to stop and read it all out, though that would be very interesting and helpful for us, but we just don't have time. So, let me tell you what it's about, Isaiah 13 to 23. It is a series of prophecies given uh, to the people of Judah through the prophet Isaiah from the one true living God. It's a series of prophecies about all the different nations that surrounded the nation of Judah. And all of these nations were countries that at various points in time either had an alliance with Judah or tried to have a political alliance with Judah. And here's a prophecy about all these different nations. What's the point of it? Well, the point is that the God's own people, the people he had formed and created, he brought out of slavery, delivered to the promised land, protected, sustained, his people, instead of seeking security in him, were seeking to form security through political alliances. So God delivers prophecies about all the different nations that they're considering and says, this is what's actually going to happen to those nations. And the answer is, at the end of the day, all these nations are going to fall. All these nations are going to fall. So we have some prophecies against these 8th century BC nations. That's what chapters 13 to 23 consists of. Now let me just uh, show you a little bit of how that actually looks. I'll draw a bit of a schematic diagram, which is influenced by geography. <laughs> here is the nation of Judah. Now, if you were here last week, what, who's the big political force today? Who's the superpower? Assyria, right? Here is Assyria. Over to the east. This is the nation that everyone was worried about, Assyria. And Judah was worried about it too. Well, what you get in these chapters are a series of prophecies about all sorts of nations around. The very first nation that is prophesied against is Babylon, or Babylonia. Babylon was, in some ways, a rival power to Assyria, but was dominated by Assyria. But it was a strong nation. But it was controlled by Assyria and was in pretty much continuous revolt against its oppressor Assyria for a very long period of time. So the first sort of prophecy that comes is actually against Babylon. Now, a uh, second set of prophecies in these chapters is against, over to the west, the Philistines. The third set of prophecies is against, over to the east, Moab. The fourth set of prophecies is against Damascus and Israel, which we heard a bit about last week. And the uh, fifth sort of set of prophecies are against the nations of Cush and Egypt. Notice it is covering all the points of the colours. Prophecies against all the nations surrounding Judah. Prophecies against all of them. Now, just to get a bit of a flavour of what this likes, because we don't get time to read it all through, if you've got your Bible there, you might like to turn to Isaiah chapter 20. Isaiah 20, let's just jump in a little bit and get a bit of a taste of some of this. Isaiah 20, and you have the prophecy against Egypt and Cush, or part of it, goes on for quite a few chapters. 
you get a bit of a taste of how this goes. So Isaiah 20 is just a short chapter, six verses. Let me read it. In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod. Now, Ashdod was a city over here in Philistine country. So Assyria are coming against the uh, Philistines at Ashdod. In that year, at that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, Take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And Isaiah did so, going around stripped and barefoot. He's going around without his clothes on. Okay. <laughs> then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years... <laughs> Yes, who wants to be a prophet of the one true living God? <laughs> Walking around at God's command, stripped and barefoot for three years. Mm. Okay. Let's keep reading. Hopefully this gets a bit, you know, it does explain as we go. As a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away, stripped and barefoot, the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared, to Egypt's shame. And then he goes on to talk against those who have trusted in these powers, Cush and Egypt, that they're going to realise the foolishness of that, right, when you see that Assyria is going to come in and wipe them out. So what happened in this time is that a whole lot of different alliances formed. So let me try and play that out for you so you can understand this uh, section of the Bible when you go back and read it. So last week we saw that, I mentioned that uh, Aram, the capital city which is Damascus, Aram and Israel formed an alliance because they were trying to withstand Assyria. And what they tried to do was they tried to make Judah join by force their alliance so they would have some more resources to fight against Assyria. Remember that? Remember the prophecy about that happened in about 734 BC. But then what we... In 734 BC came the prophecy, but or the alliance and the prophecy... But then we saw that Damascus was wiped out in 732 BC and Israel wiped out in 722 BC by Assyria. Assyria came in and wiped them both out. Right. Now, but there were other alliances that were formed as well. In particular, the Philistines joined with the Egyptians in 715 BC. And they also got Moab to join. They all joined forces. And they invited Judah to join with them in 715 BC to resist Assyria. Judah, fortunately this time, actually listened to the word of God. <laughs> what was God's word? Don't, we saw it last week, right? Don't trust in human powers. You need to trust, stand firm in your faith in the one true living God. And so they actually resisted this. And sure enough, in 711 BC... Assyria came in and that's when it attacked Ashdod, gave the Philistines whipping, that's when it attacked Moab and Egypt suffered as well. So Assyria came in and sort of went through all that and Judah was spared because Judah had not participated in the alliance. Now you think Judah would learn from this, right? Go, that really paid off for us, didn't it? <laughs> Trusting in the Lord. However, you've got to understand how fearful God's people were, which is what we talked about last week. It is so easy, even if you're a Christian, to be very fearful of things in the world. Will God actually come through for me? Will, is he actually good? Will he, does he really have 
good things promised for me if I stick with him. Maybe I need to secure it myself. Exactly that was their thinking. What happened was uh, there was a change of political leadership in Assyria. Suddenly the nation is looking a little bit politically unstable. This is just like, you know, anyone say political economy or government or... Well, you know all this sort of stuff, right? For the rest of you, you get everything you come with. You get everything. Some week we'll have biology, this week politics. Okay. Everyone was really thinking, ah, this is our big moment. Assyria are destabilised. So, in 705, Egypt and Cush got together with Babylon and said, these guys are looking unstable. This is our big moment. You coming from the south, us coming from further over this way, this is our big moment to resist. They asked Judah, do you want in? Judah actually said, oh yeah, this is a big moment. And so they joined in as well. 705. Do you think this ends well? <laughs> do you think just from what you've seen this is going to end well? What happens is Assyria gets its act together. Assyria comes and smashes Babylon. Assyria comes and really deals a blow to Egypt. Assyria comes into Judah, and this is what we saw last week. This is in 701. 701, in they come. Sorry, 701? 702. 701. In they come and they take the whole land of Judah except for the capital city, Jerusalem. They've taken the entire nation up to the very city walls. Remember last week we saw Isaiah described it, he prophesied against it, he said what the river Euphrates, which is over here in Assyria land, is going to flood up, and he's going to flood up to your very neck. And that's exactly what happened. That Judah survived was an astounding intervention of God's grace. Because he told them that this is what would happen. But you're going to have to wait to get further on with Isaiah to hear about that. Okay. That gives you a bit, of a bit of a background. So what you're getting here at this particular point in time is they are being forewarned about all of this. The Lord is saying, you want to trust in these guys or these guys or these guys or these guys. Let me tell you what's going to happen to each of these nations. They are all going to fall. Every single one of them. So you're going to trust my word or go with your own. In fact, he gives a very good reason for trusting his own word. If you look at Isaiah chapter 14, got the book of Isaiah there, Isaiah 14, still in this section of uh, 13 to 23. Isaiah 14 verse 26. Hear what the Lord says. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? Who's in control? These nations? No, the Lord is in control of all of it. So why put your trust in them? So, the first thing you want to say about this is there's prophecies against the nations. These 8th century nations. However, when you read through all these prophecies, in almost every single one, almost every single one, there is simultaneously within it a word of hope. or a prophecy of hope for God's people. That is, in this case, in the 8th century BC, the people of Judah. 
in almost every single case, as you read any of the prophecies, you'll see mixed in with it a word of hope. Why is that there? It's because this prophecy actually isn't given to the nations. This prophecy is directed to Judah, telling you that's why you shouldn't trust these people. And the flip side of that is, the Lord has good things planned for you. The Lord has good things planned for you. And so that's woven through every single prophecy. Um, I'll, I'll just name a few for you. When he's prophesying against Babylon, in the very first prophecy, he says, Yet Jacob, the people of Judah, will be settled in her own land, and the foreigners will come and join her. So you don't need to run off to the Babylonians to form your alliance. Actually, my plan is that you'll be settled in your own land, and they will come to you. There's a word of, a word of hope for them. Or another, I'll give you another example. Uh, when he's prophesying against Moab, he actually says, talks about the Messiah. God's chosen king, the one to come. He says, who will come from David's throne, who, who will rule and judge with justice, who will speed the cause of the righteous. He prophesies about a king who come, who will establish this sort of rule of justice. Or another one, when he's prophesying against Egypt, he says, you know what? The Lord, that is me, the one true Lord, the living God, I am going to be worshipped, not just in Judah, he says, I'm actually going to be worshipped in Egypt and Assyria. You're running off to these guys with their false gods, but let me tell you, I'm the one who's going to be worshipped here and here. Which is an astounding thing to say. How is this always going to happen? It's an incredible word of comfort for God's people. Word of hope. Okay, so that's sort of, there's chapters 13 to 23. Not too bad. Hey, we did alright. Good. You can go away, and I hope you actually do go away and read it, and this will help you, I hope, understand what you're reading. Let's move on, though. What happens in chapters 24 to 27? God goes global, is what happens. In chapters 24 to 27, God goes global. Have a look at chapter 24, and I'll explain what I mean. Isaiah chapter 24. I'm just going to delve into two passages in this section to try to capture this. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 1. Remember, what have we just had? A whole series of prophecies against all these nations, right? So you got that in your head? Then he says this, chapter 24, verse 1. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for master as for his servant, for mistress as for her servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste. Dead battery. Here we go. Just ponder those words for a moment. <laughs> okay. Copy? Yeah, yeah. Excellent. The earth, verse 3 of Isaiah 24. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. 
Therefore a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore earth's inhabitants are burned up, and very few are left. Do you see what I mean by saying God goes global? This is not about particular nations now, is it? Suddenly this is actually about the whole earth. Here's a prophecy against the against all peoples, against the entire world. prophecy against the entire world? The answer is there, actually, in that little passage, verse 5. Can you see it there? The earth is defiled by its people. Now, I don't think that means necessarily environmental degradation, which might be the first thing we think of, because he explains it in the next verse. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Now, this is not about God's people, Judah, which had the Old Testament law. This is saying all people, every country, every place, they've all violated the law. What law? I mean, it's hard to be held accountable by a law you don't know. What statutes? What's this everlasting covenant he's talking about? Well, that little phrase, everlasting covenant, should help you. Because actually that phrase is the key that points you back to a particular chapter in Genesis. Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, coming right after the flood. You know, Noah and the flood. Why does the flood come? Because all of... All, all of humanity had wandered away from God by Noah and his family. God sends a flood in judgment. After they come out of the ark, Noah and his family, God says, I'm going to establish an everlasting covenant, same language, with you and your descendants and all the peoples of the earth. Right, okay, so that's the everlasting covenant. What is it? Well, it's signed, it's given a symbol, the rainbow, <coughs> but what's actually the stipulation? What's actually the promise? Because covenants always have those two things. Well, the promise is God saying, I'm never again will I destroy the world by flood. So that's the promise. What's the stipulation back in Genesis chapter 9? Well, when you look carefully at Genesis chapter 9, I'll just read you a few things. The beginning of that, God gives Noah and his family an instruction. He says, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. You heard that before? Where's that from? That's going right back to the Garden of Eden. Right? It's like God has set the divine reset button. Right? And so what he's done is saying, I mean, I have a Mac, so I don't have to do that. <laughs> but I've heard that other people do it. Um, and so... Our president keeps a battery for these situations. Isn't that, isn't that organised? That's very cool. Thank you. Um, so it's like God sets a reset button. He says... This, was the, this is my intention for humanity in the world. Be fruitful, fill, increase the earth and subdue it. After the flood, he says to Noah and his descendants, same deal, same creation mandate. This is what, you're, what you need to do. So there's that there. But also in verses 4 to 6 of Genesis chapter 9, he says, there's one thing that I want you to do. Well, he actually says, I'm going to give you everything to eat, which is sort of like the Garden of Eden. He says, now though you can have the animals as well, eat the animals as well which wasn't in Genesis, but you can ask me why about that later. He says, there's just one thing I want you not to do. Don't eat meat with the lifeblood still in it. <coughs> sort of interesting, back in Genesis chapters 2, he said, eat of the tree of anything in the garden, bar this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here, when he set the reset, he says, eat anything you like except not this one thing. 
Why not that? Why not meet with the lifeblood still in it? Now, I, I think, um, though um, it's debated about what that means, I think that's saying something about the sanctity of life, actually. And he particularly goes on and applies it to human life. That is, you're to respect all life, particularly human life, because he demands an accounting uh, for human life when it's shared unjustly. So I think what, he, what, Isaiah, what the Lord here is saying is, you know what, I've just said these basic sort of stipulations to the people of the earth, and that's what they've not done. They've not lived life as I intend, fill the earth and subdue it, and have respect for human life, and that's not what I see. In fact, some of the prophecies that go through earlier about the different nations, they talk about blood being shed unjustly. So if you want to see one little instance of it, if you turn back actually to Isaiah 13, so Isaiah there I hope, Isaiah 13 11, this is in the middle of the first prophecy against Babylon, he again goes global for a moment, and he says there in Isaiah 13 verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. What's going on here is... God's just judgment on human refusal to treat him as God and live as God wants us to. That's what's going on here. And it's a judgment that comes on the whole earth. Now here's a question for you. In light of all that, when did that judgment happen? We saw with the other prophecies, we can put dates to a lot of it when those prophecies came true. When does this prophecy happen? The short answer is, of course, it hasn't. This prophecy there in the book of Isaiah is yet to be fulfilled. We are still waiting for this day. When God's just judgment will come on all the earth for its sin and wickedness. In fact, uh, the New Testament, because you've got to read the book of Isaiah in the light of the whole of the scriptures, the New Testament very clearly says that we're still waiting for this day. I'll give you some references you might like to jot down and look up later. Uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 10, says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and receive what is due to us for what's been done in the body, whether good or evil. Individual accountability. Some other places you might like to look, Romans chapter 2 verse 16 or Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 to 15 all talk about everyone being judged, the living and the dead, for how they've lived. And so the New Testament takes this prophet and says, we're still waiting for this day and what more we know more than Isaiah was revealed to him as we know that Jesus will be the judge. Jesus who's been made Lord and Christ by our Heavenly Father. So that's what we know. Now the thing is, that is a really non-PC, by which I mean politically correct, a non-PC <laughs> message. That everyone is going to be held account by God personally for how we lived. That's a very uncomfortable message. Isn't it? And it's uncomfortable for two reasons, I think. It's uncomfortable philosophically. Do we really want to say that, you know, that there's this objective standard that everyone's going to be held to? Well, that doesn't seem right, especially in our sort of relativistic, pluralistic, postmodern sort of world. That so philosophically, that grates a bit. It also grates personally, though, 
Um, I'm blessed to be in a very loving marriage with my wife, Jenny, and um, she's fantastic, but truth be told, sometimes, sometimes I do not treat her as I ought. Um, I don't shout and yell, and I'm certainly never violent, though there's times where when we're having an argument, times where, uh, to my shame, to my shame, uh, I say things that are that seem nice, but I know are going to probably hurt. Things that are a bit manipulative. Things that are a bit, well, you're hurting me by what you're saying, so I'll just throw something out there that says, well, you're not so great yourself. Now, am I proud of that? No. Am I ashamed of it? Yes. Does it happen frequently enough for me to not be able to just sweep that out of the carpet and say it doesn't matter? Oh yeah, it happens often enough. And that's just one instance. There are so many times where we don't respect one another, we don't love one another as we ought to do. And so the thought that I'm going to be held accountable for that, that, that is an uncomfortable thought, right? And the reason, I, I feel like I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place actually because on the one hand, I do want justice to be done. There are too many people in this world who commit terrible evil and wickedness and get away with it. And I don't want to see that happen. I want there to be justice. If no human court will actually bring justice, I'm glad that God will. And yet at the same time I know that I'm not just a victim of wickedness and evil. Unfortunately, I'm an agent. And so I sort of want to have judgment, but I don't really want to have judgment. Do you know what I mean? So it's difficult personally, this truth. So what can we say about it? Why does God bother to, to judge them like this? Why does he create this problem for us? Well, um, I think it's related to God's holiness. It's related to God's holiness, which we saw in Isaiah chapter 6. Um, I quoted from John Webster a few weeks ago when we were talking about holiness, and I find some of his stuff on this really helpful. So I'm just going to throw it up, and hopefully you can see it. You can read that all right? <coughs> This is where John Webster is trying to work out how, how does God's holiness relate to him judging? Okay, why does he need to judge because he's holy? And this is what John says. He says, God's holiness is the undeflected purposiveness, which I'm sure is not a word, but anyway. <laughs> he's the undeflected purposiveness with which God ensures that his will for humankind will not be spoiled by wickedness. Then he explains, as the Holy One, the triune God is at work to ensure that the end of the human creature, that is the, the goal of the human creature, what we have called the righteous fellowship with God, that that will be attained and that sin will not be allowed to lead to the creature's ruin and destruction. So he goes on, God's holiness destroys wickedness for the same reason that we human beings destroy disease because it attacks the creature's flourishing and is opposed to our well-being. And as the end of the eradication of disease is health, so the end of the eradication of unholiness or sin is the creature's consecration, that is, the creature's wholesome life in righteous fellowship with God. Because he is holy, God does not want you to live with second best. He doesn't want to live, see you actually destroy yourself through rejecting him and going your own way in the world, which he knows will end in disaster, just as it did for the people of Judah. 
So because of his holiness, he actually wants to eradicate sin. He wants to actually judge sin, condemn sin, so that there might be life for you. It's because he loves you that he actually wants to take action against sin and judge it and destroy it. So, the other thing I think we need to remember as I'm sort of thinking about this judgment and, um, and uh, how we should think about this, the other thing to note is, which I think is really helpful on the issue of judgment, is that judgment for God is not easy. Judgment for God is not easy. It's judgment with tears. And you can see this actually in Isaiah, and I'll just give you the reference. Isaiah 15 verse 5, he actually talks about, in prophesying against Moab, he actually says, My heart cries out over you. And simultaneously as he's announcing judgment on Moab for their wickedness, God's heart is crying out. This is not easy. This is judgment with tears. And we see the same truth reflected throughout the scriptures. Um, you see it in Ezekiel. Chapter 33, verse 11, where God says, I don't desire the death of any sinner, but I would rather they turn from their sins and live. That's what God wants. Or, again, in um, 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, the reason that this judgment hasn't happened yet is because God's been patient with people, wanting them to come to repentance, so they might not be condemned. This is the character of our God. He doesn't want let, to let evil just perpetuate itself. He's called a day for it to be judged and condemned. But he doesn't want us to be caught up in it. So he wants us to repent. Now, uh, I've talked about the prophecy against the entire world, but it's also worth noting that in, within these chapters, 24 to 27, in my last five minutes, there is also, there is again, a message of hope a word of hope for God's global people. A message of hope for God's global people. And we come here to Isaiah chapter 25 to 27, which is a good place to finish because uh, Isaiah chapter 25 in particular is, I think, my favourite Old Testament text. I don't know if you... You probably shouldn't have favourite text in the Bible because it's all God's word, but I've got one. So, And if I was an artist, I would do something with this. I would make a sculpture of it. I would put it to song. I would write poetry about it, except it's already poetry, so that's probably a bit dumb. I would write a book about it, if I could write a book. But I can't do any of that, so I'll read it to you. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 9. Here is a word of hope that just blows your mind if you think about the different problems the world faces. In the light of the judgment that's coming, here we go, Isaiah 25 verse 6. The Lord says, on this mountain, what mountain? Okay, let's get that clear. He's talking about Mount Zion, the heart Jerusalem in Judah. He's saying, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Okay, that's sounding pretty good, right? Okay, that's sounding pretty good. A feast. In fact, it's even more interesting when you go and read the prophecy against Jerusalem, you see he's saying destruction is coming upon you and you're feasting and you're saying because tomorrow we die. 
and you're eating and says best meats and choice wines because tomorrow we die. He said, actually, on my mountain, I'm going to prepare the feast and the best meats and choice wines and keep going. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. Hang on, what's this? A shroud over all nations? A sheet over all peoples? What's this? He will swallow up death forever. What the Lord is planning is to take away death from all nations. What's the punishment for sin? What's the just judgment of sin? The wages of sin, Romans 6.23? Death. What's the Lord preparing? He's going to take away death. Yes, he might be the judge, but I tell you what, he's the Savior. He's the Savior. He's going to swallow up death forever. Keep going. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. He's going to take away death, which touches everybody. He's going to do it for everyone, all nations. This is where all the nations get. Salvation is found, though, through his Old Testament people. How, how does this translate in the whole of the scriptures? Well, where was death destroyed? Ask the same question. Where did it happen? It happened in Jesus. It happened at Easter. When for one human being, God said, you know what? Death, it's gone. And he's raised to live evermore. Death has been destroyed for one. And the words of Jesus is, whoever believes in me, even though they die, they will live. Salvation is found through Judah. It's found in the person of Jesus. So, let's wrap all that up. Let's come back to where we start. Healthcare. <laughs> I'm glad that we're having a debate about healthcare in this country because it matters. You should care too, actually, because it does matter. It's important and significant debate that concerns us all. But there is a health problem that the politicians, Tony Abbott, Kevin Rudd, doesn't matter what, what political they are not touching. It's the health problem that we die. Barack Obama said, yes, we can. Let me say, when it comes to death, fixing the problem of death, no, we can't. He wouldn't even try, would he? He wouldn't even try. In fact, you know his other great... Um, political sloganing that he had going for the recent healthcare debate in the US was, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? Which is brilliant political writing, right? It's fantastic. I don't know who his speechwriter is. <laughs> but when you think about the issue of death, those questions become very, very searching. If not us, with the problem of death, then who? The answer is in Jesus. If not now, then when? The answer is Easter. Easter Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection and his returning glory when the dead will be raised with him, all those who put their faith in him. I hope that as we head into next week where we're going to have these uh, three great speakers come and talk about the meaning of Easter, that you will come yourself to be enriched in your understanding, to bring your friends along, because, friends, this is where hope lies for our world on the problem that is too big, too scary for anyone to tackle. But the answer is in Jesus.
So let me pray and we'll go to our place. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have done in the Lord Jesus in his death and his mighty resurrection that deals with our sin and that means that we too can join with him in living with you into all eternity. We praise you for these wonderful truths right and deep into our minds and hearts for your glory. Amen. Love to get your communication cards. Love to see you here next week. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.